gotta say one thing back too. Dude, I love that. I gotta say one thing back too. You actually. Alright, we're mostly through the line there, so let's go ahead and gather together, quiet down. Those that are standing in line can just listen. That's nice to get a little bit of time to talk with one another here at the beginning of class. However, if you show up early, then we can get homework checked and you can talk with one another. I know it's a lot to ask. Uh, seven, third, well, you know, got class starting at 8.30. You got to get out the door and get here. I don't think the roads were too bad today. So try to get here, you know, five, ten minutes early so we can check homework and you guys can say hey and we can still start class around 8.30. Uh, if we lose 10 or 15 minutes at the beginning of class, well then we're not going to be able to do all the great things that I've got planned for class time. Alright, so first thing I want to do today is I want to give you the quiz on the hermeneutics terms. Remember, we started talking about the chart here where we've got exegesis, we've got hermeneutics, the inductive method, uh, all this inspiration, criticism, canonization, all those key words. So I gave you a handout that had the definitions for those. So we're just going to do a quick matching quiz on that. So let me hand that around. Pass those, Wesley. So I want you to write the letter of the definition next to the term that it goes with. So write the letter for the definition that goes with hermeneutics right next to the word hermeneutics on down the line. You can do it on the left or the right. Uh, it doesn't matter to me. It's where the letter goes in the, next to the number one or at the end of the word hermeneutics. When you're doing a matching quiz, if you see one that you're not sure of, just skip it and come back to it at the end when there's only a couple left to match it with. You guys know all these techniques, right? I find it's easier to read the definition and then find the word rather than read the word and then try to find the definition. You're reading the word and trying to find the definition. You're re doing a lot more reading. It'll take more time. There are quizzes left. Where are the extra quizzes? Write the letter next to the term. The letter of the definition. I'll be nice. I'll leave the chart up here. If that gives you any clues. 
Alright, who needs more time? Alright, so, give you another minute here to finish up. reasoning. However, when we're talking about when Bible study, 
we're talking about a method of interpretation. And so, don't get it confused with the line of, of logic. Deductive and inductive logic both have a good place. But when it comes to studying the Bible, when we talk about the inductive method, what we mean is, is that you observe the text before you come to conclusions about what the text is about. So, when I'm in my study each week, I don't sit down and say, well, I'd like to preach on uh, abortion. And so, I'm going to go into the Bible and find all the texts that I think that will support my position on abortion. That's a deductive method, where I've got my idea ahead of time on what I want to preach, and then I go to the Bible to find support for that idea. Now, there's nothing innately wrong with that, but there's a danger that you're going to read into text the meaning that you want to see in those texts. And you might end up making things uh, eisegeting uh, meaning because you've already determined this is what I'm looking for, so this is what I find. So often what you look for is what you find. That's just the human nature. But instead, if you take the inductive method, you come to the text and you say, I'm going to observe everything about the text and let it then lead me to the conclusion of what I'm supposed to preach on Sunday. So this will be important when you are preparing your Bible study at the end of the semester. So you've got a couple of major assignments left. You've got your speech and you've got a uh, Bible study that you're going to prepare. And so when you're preparing your Bible study, you don't say, well, this is what I want to talk about. Let me find a text that will support that. Instead, you pick a text and then you let that text lead you to your thesis of what your Bible study is going to be about. That's the inductive, inductive method. So that's what we're looking for here. As opposed to the deductive Bible study method, which is letter D, D right? Where you begin with the premise and then you find evidence to support it. Um, deductive reasoning has a place, don't get me wrong. But inductive Bible study is what we're teaching here in our hermeneutics class. Number nine, illumination. E. e. Yes. Illumination is the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit through the Holy Scriptures. So inspiration is what happened between the Holy Spirit and the author of the text. Illumination is what happens between the text and the, read, the, the Holy Spirit and the reader of the text. Okay? So illumination is happening today. Inspiration is what happened when the Bible was written originally. And that's the difference here. So this guy, he can be illumined because of the spiritual handle. And the Holy Spirit is involved in illuminating the scriptures so that he's able to draw the meaning out of the text. The Holy Spirit leads and guides into all the truth, as Jesus promised. So that's the work of God, the Holy Spirit, the illumination that we experience uh, when we're reading the Bible. God illuminates us with the light of God's truth, God's word. All right? And then number 10, biblical meditation is? H. H. Objectively reading, studying, thinking, and praying about the Word of God. So notice the word objectively. So rather than subjectively, of what does this text mean to me, which is a place. There's a place for that, okay? Uh, the text should mean something to you. But you don't start with the subjective. You start with the objective. And when you're doing hermeneutics, this is objective interpretation. Yes, Jamie? Uh, so we need to move a vehicle or two? If you're parked in front of the shed across the road, would you mind moving your vehicle? Thanks. Thanks, Jamie.
Alright, now what do I do? Slight pause whilst we move vehicles. Um, let's talk a little bit more. Well, you know, you guys like to talk to each other. Go ahead and talk to each other. <laughs>
And so the context of each scripture passage has grown over time as God added more books to the Bible. So when Genesis was first written as the first book of the Bible, well, it was a very small context, just the context of the book itself. But as Moses added more books, and then as you got the, the Psalms being written and the later prophets, then that expanded the context of Genesis. So that when Psalm 110 was written, and God said to the Davidic king, you are my son, uh, you are a priest forever, let me get the quote right, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, that expands the context of Genesis where we have the historical account of Melchizedek, king of Salem. And so with that expanded context, now Psalm 110 adding to the significance of the historical account of Melchizedek, well then you get the book of Hebrews, which has a couple of chapters written on Jesus Christ as the Melchizedekian high priest of the New Covenant. And so what was a small context and seemed like just a little historical blurb in Genesis becomes much greater theologically significantly as the context of the scripture expands into the book of Psalms and the New Testament revelation. So that's an important principle to keep in mind uh, looking at the entire canon as the larger context. All right, and then we've got 13, canonization goes with what letter? C. Right, letter C, the process of recognizing, and I underline that word, recognizing. The process of recognizing which writings are the word of God. No one has authority to make something the word of God. No council, no pope, no pastor can say, hey, this now is added to the Bible. This is the word of God. Uh, only what we can do is, as believers, recognize what God has inspired. We can't make something inspired by God and, therefore, a part of the canon. And then number 14, textual criticism. Uh, oh. I, yeah. The science of determining which manuscripts are closest to the original. There's criticism on the chart. That's textual criticism. That's lower criticism. If you want to write lower criticism underneath textual criticism, that will help you to differentiate it from higher criticism. Higher criticism deals with the sources behind their, the original text of the Bible. Like, did the writer of First and Second Kings have books about the kings that he used and took parts of in order to compile his book about all of the kings? And yes, that's true. You can read through the book of... 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and he'll reference books that have a more detailed account of those kings, which we no longer have those books, uh, like the prophecies of Ahijah or something like that. Uh, he wrote about you know, a certain king that lived during his time, and so then the writer of 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, seems to have had these books written by prophets that then he took selections of in order to make the composite book of the whole history of the kings of Israel. So yes, there are sometimes sources behind what the New Testament and Old Testament writers have composed, but we don't know much about those. It's not a very fruitful study that's rather speculative and it doesn't lead, especially for unbelievers, to any solid conclusions. So higher criticism is something that we don't pay a lot of attention to. Lower criticism is essential, and we talked some about that last week when I passed around my Greek New Testament and my Hebrew Old Testament that had the critical apparatus down at the bottom, which showed how 
certain manuscripts might have different readings in certain places. And then we compare and contrast those different readings according to reason, uh, rational base, and the evidence, all the evidence that God has given us to be able to determine with great precision what the original meaning, uh, what the original writing of the New Testament, what the original text actually was, word for word. So that's hermeneutics, and that's the beginning with the definitions that will be helpful to you as you go through the book, which formerly was called Study to Show Yourself Approved, but now it's called Principles of Bible Interpretation, if I got that right. And it's a really good book. I'm enjoying reading it again. It's been a while since I've used it, so it's glad, I'm glad to get back to it and share it with a new crop of students. And it's a resource you're going to want to keep your whole life. Um, and if you're ever looking for a, an opportunity to teach others hermeneutics, I recommend you use this book. There's a lot of books on hermeneutics. This is one of the best I've found. It's simple, doesn't use a lot of technical language, it's clear, and I think it's very accurate as far as its hermeneutical principles. Sadly, that's not true for every book on hermeneutics. There's been a lot of humanism and postmodernism that has worked its way in to some of the hermeneutics books that are being written by Christians. All right, so go ahead and put a total out of 14 correct at the top of the quiz and then hand it towards the middle. And if one of you will collect those and bring that to me, then I can get that recorded. And I'll hand it back to you next week. No, no, don't turn them in. We're going to do that now. All right, so the next thing we have to do is go over the quiz for how should we then live on the philosophers and the artists, which we began last week. So here's the ones that were done in class. You can hand those around, ladies. Men, here's yours. We're going to grade these in class. So get one that's not yours. Trade with someone, as we always do. And we're going to go over this now. Good opportunity for us to review once again the key thinkers in Western history who have demonstrated the futility, the emptiness of autonomous human reasoning. You know, we can thank these philosophers for the work that they've done because what they have done for us as Christians is they've demonstrated that when man starts with himself and leaves God out of the picture and tries to come to an understanding uh, knowledge and wisdom, a unifying principle that will tie all of our observations together, that man fails. That there, without God, there is no unifying principle that will allow people to be able to gain understanding of meaning and significance, as well as objective truth. So, these guys have done a great service in showing the futility of autonomous human reasoning. And that's not what they were trying to do, but that's what they ended up doing in God's providence. So, everybody's got a quiz to grade. Make sure that the name of the person whose quiz you're grading is up in the upper left, and that your name is in the upper right, where it says graded by. So, letter A. 
This German philosopher's early work summarized man's stance towards the natural world as being one characterized by angst, that is, a generalized anxiety. Out of this feeling of anxiety, we must make a choice as to how to live. Uh, who was that? Heidegger. Right, Martin Heidegger. So this idea of choice, uh, human free will, they were... My, Heidegger was hoping that that would be the thing that could provide meaning and significance to mankind. And of course, it doesn't. That fails as well. Whenever we try to take some part of God's creation, normally a part of the human being, and make that the ultimate thing, it fails. It can't be the ultimate. Your choice, your freedom of choice, as wonderful as it is, is not the ultimate thing in the universe. And Heidegger was hoping that, that it could be, but it can't. That only God can be the ultimate. Letter B. English author who published Brave New World in 1932. Later in life, he advocated for the use of drugs in order to find a meaningful existence. Who was that? Yes, Aldous Huxley. So, you're probably familiar with that title, Brave New World. Um, I haven't read Brave New World. I don't know if it's worth reading. But, uh, very interesting philosopher, author. See, when people are escaping from reason because they found that pure reason, autonomous human reasoning, cannot lead to truth, they will pick different things to try to escape into. And Aldous Huxley, he tried to escape into drugs, that experience, that drug-induced state, which sometimes can feel like it's meaningful. It can feel like, oh wow, you know, this is profound, this is deep, like an LSD trip. But it's not. It's just a deception. It's, it's provoking a feeling that has no basis in reality and really only leads to death. So it's fascinating how you see this playing out uh, with those who have bought into the philosophy of the world. Letter C. This Danish philosopher and theologian demonstrated that autonomous human reason will always lead to pessimism. He taught that meaning and values can only be achieved through a leap of faith. Who was that? Kierkegaard. Yes, Soren Kierkegaard. Now, Kierkegaard had a great influence on Karl Barth, who will be coming up here in a minute. And Karl Barth took Kierkegaard's philosophy and applied it to Christian theology. And he said, you know, the search for the historical Jesus, that is not the right way to go about religion. It's not about the right way to go about finding meaning in life. Uh, instead of trying to rationally find the historical Jesus that we think, you know, is demythologized, instead, don't worry about demythologizing the Bible. Just use the Bible with its mythology that we know, you know, didn't really happen. But still, just pretend like it did and find a... a a religious experience through that Christian existentialism. Now, this focus on personal experience rather than having an objective truth to rely upon is very pervasive in Christianity today. Uh, I would say this neo-orthodoxy that Karl Barth advocated, it, it's kind of all around us as Christians and it's hard to distinguish. And when you see a lot of Christians today, I think a lot of Christians are neo-Orthodox, like Karl Barth, in their thinking. Uh, they don't believe that the earth was created 6,000 years ago. They believe in evolution. And that, that scientific unbelief that the Bible's not true when it talks about where we came from and all of that, it leads to this kind of existentialism. Well, yeah, the Bible's not 
you know, true. It's, it's myth. It's got all this myth in it. But you can experience God through the, the myth. And it doesn't really have to have any correspondence to reality. So a lot of people, I think, read their Bible in this fashion. And they're evangelical in their beliefs. But they don't have a foundation for those evangelical beliefs. They have a neo-Orthodox foundation. And so they just have escaped from reason into a kind of evangelical orthodoxy. But I wonder, you know, for those Christians, are they genuinely saved when basically they're still functioning like existentialists? They just, instead of choosing an LSD trip for their experience, they've chosen Christian experience as their experience. I don't know. It's uh, something that I think is worth thinking about and exploring. Some ideas that have been stirred since I've been reading this. All right, so that was Soren Kierkegaard. Letter D. This 20th century existentialist taught that man could authenticate himself through an act of the will. It's very similar to Heidegger, right? Not through reason. He signed the Algerian Manifesto in 1960, making a moral judgment in contradiction of his stated philosophy. Who was that? Sartre. Yeah, Jean-Paul Sartre. So, he believes there's no such thing as object of truth and object of values, but instead that we just choose through an act of our will uh, what is important, what is valuable to us. And so, why should he sign a manifesto saying that my choice for what is right in this war is better than the other side's choice for what is right in this war? You see that people can't live according to this subjective standard. There has to be objective morality. How do we decide whether a war should be fought or not? if everybody gets to choose to authenticate themselves by their own will. This side authenticates themselves, that side authenticates themselves, you're going to have chaos, you're going to have war, you're going to have killing. This is not a recipe for peace, and that's why God says, through the prophet, there is no peace for the wicked. When you reject God, there's no peace. And God is the source of peace. He's the one that can unite us and bring us together to show us this is right, this is wrong, this is what we're supposed to do. Uh, do what's right. Alright, so that's just start. Letter E. This neo-Orthodox theologian's most famous work is his commentary on Romans, published in 1919. He promoted theological existentialism as a response to theological rationalism. Who is that? Karl Barth. Now let me tell you this, a lot of evangelical seminaries have a deep respect for Karl Barth. A lot of evangelical scholars like to quote Barth and think of him very highly. What has happened, if I can give you my interpretation, you take it for what you think it's worth, is that the, the church in the early part of the 20th century had a, a deep divide over the modernist controversy. So the modernists were the Albert Schweitzers who said, you know, we got to demythologize the Bible, we got to get rid of all the miracles, and you can't believe in the virgin birth. But instead, we're just going to hold on to the moral core. Jesus was a, a good moral teacher. And so they came in and split the church. And you had the, the liberal Protestants go with the modernism. And you had the conservative Protestants say, no, we're going to stick with our Reformation thinking. We're going to stick with the inerrancy of the Bible. So that the main issue in the 20th century that divided the church, you could say, was inerrancy. And do we believe the, the scientific parts of the Bible, or do we demythologize the Bible and, and take this, this humanistic, rational base? Okay? Um, now, 
That was the 20th century fight. Now in the 21st century, there's a huge divide that's happening within the church. It's happening again in all the denominations. Even the denominations that went liberal, they're also having this new divide. And all the denominations that were conservative in the 20th century, they're also experiencing this divide. And it's a divide that's philosophical. It always comes down to the philosophy, right? So what's happened in the 21st century is that the ideas of Barth, uh, who you know, got it from Kierkegaard, this is postmodernism. So now postmodernism is dividing the church the way that modernism divided the church. So the same cycle. You've got a, a worldly philosophy that comes along, and some Christians buy into it and some Christians don't buy into it. And then this cre creates a, a, diverse, a divergence. Some Christians are going this way, some Christians are going that way. And so if you want to know what is at the root of the division within the, the Baptist today, what's at the root in the division between uh, the Presbyterians today, uh, that it's this difference between whether you're neo-Orthodox, which is a postmodern approach to the Bible like Karl Barth, or whether you are still like the Reformers in your thinking uh, with this uh, New Testament biblical philosophy. All right. So Bart was very important, and uh, it's only 100 years ago. That's not that long. Then we're experiencing the results of that now. It takes time for the the, the new idea to get taught to the the churches and what's first taught in seminaries, and then to get taught to the pastors, and then to get trickled down into the churches and to divide. This takes time, and so we're actually experiencing the results of Bart now uh, in the church 100 years later. Really, really interesting. All right, letter F. He published The Phenomenology of Mind in 1807 and attempted to establish a unity between the phenomenal and the noumenal worlds. The phenomenal world is the stuff that you see and touch, smell, feel. Uh, the noumenal world is the world of the ideas, the mind. And he was trying to establish a unity between them, very platonic, with the, the upper world and the lower world. Uh, we must define what connects them, what binds them together. He is famous for his dialectic, which speaks of how thesis and antithesis battle to form a new synthesis, which corresponds to a view of mankind's evolving consciousness. So he kind of takes the ideas of evolution, takes it from the physical world into the world of the mind, and say mankind's consciousness is also evolving. And you Christians who still think according to what uh, some guy wrote 2,000 years ago, you're not keeping up with evolution. You're a throwback. That, yeah, that was the, the consciousness of mankind 2,000 years ago. We've progressed. Uh, we're progressive Christians. And so we don't have to be bound by that old thinking. New and better ideas have evolved uh, and incorporated those ideas. But that's a, a totally different way of viewing truth than the way the biblical authors and the way that Jesus viewed truth. So who was that? Uh, letter F. Yep, Hegel. Uh, Hegel was very influential on Marx. So Marxism has a, a lot of its roots in Hegelian philosophy. Letter G. His book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, published in 1906, and that's 13 years before Barth's commentary on Romans, which shook the, the world and basically changed the uh, progressive Christians from being rationalist, modernist, to now moving in this neo-orthodox, postmodernist direction. Uh, so interesting to see the dates there. 
Uh, a premier example of theological rationalism, whereby scholars tried to remove the supernatural from the Bible. Who was that? Schweitzer. Schweitzer. Albert Schweitzer. My uh, wife was looking at a, a book of Christ uh, a, a series of books on Christian heroes that she was wanting to use for our homeschool, and Albert Schweitzer was one of the names in the list of Christian heroes. Because, as Schaefer points out, he did do some heroic things. However, uh, just because somebody does some heroic things doesn't make them a, a hero. And uh, if you look at Schweitzer's relationship with God because of his philosophy and his theology, he's certainly not someone that we want to follow. And so, like, well, let's just get rid of that one. And maybe we can still use some of the other uh, books on Christian heroes. Letter I. This German philosopher lived from 1724 to 1804 and wrote his book, Critique of Pure Reason, in 1781. Who was that? Yes, Immanuel Kant. So he kind of put the, the, the death knell to this rationalism in philosophy. <coughs> Descartes thought, through rationalism, through autonomous human reasoning, we can find truth, we can find meaning. And Kant came along and kind of put the final period on that and said, nope, that is a fruitless hope. You will never get there that through that method. So we can be thankful that he demonstrated that well. All right, so flip it over. Uh, there's eight on the first side, so you could mark uh, up there how many out of eight they got correct on the first side. Let's go to the back side, where we've got some of the artists. This one was a little bit more challenging. We'll see how you do on the artists. Now, as we think about modern art, or postmodern art would be another way of describing what we see going on in the art world, I came across a video essay that I thought was very well done, where he pointed out that modern art, postmodern art, is the suicide note of the West. Uh, when it comes to Western thinking, Western philosophy, Western civilization, modern art is the suicide note. It's not what actually kills us, but it's the note that is left behind as to why we kill ourselves, uh, intellectually, mentally, philosophically, spiritually. And I think that's a, that's a good insight, that's a good comparison. That modern art is the suicide note of the West, uh, saying uh, this, is, this is the death of reason and thinking, meaning and hope. Which is not a good place to be. Alright? So, let's take a look at some of the men who led into that direction. Some more, some less, but all kind of following in their time this evolution of Western thinking <coughs> on these key philosophical issues. So, letter A. His painting, A Nude Descending a Staircase in 1912, is so fragmented that you cannot even see the human form in the painting. He also created ready-made art by merely signing common objects. Who was that? Marcel Duchamp. Yeah, Marcel Duchamp. A lot of what we see here is not art, but it's actually anti-art. And I think that's a great term to, to use here. That when philosophy died, first they killed God, as Nietzsche said, and theology died. And then philosophy followed right after that. Philosophy died. And then the arts died. And 
so what you end up with isn't so much art, but anti-art. It's, it's thumbing its nose at, at art. And uh, that's when a, an artist just signs a stool with the wheel, you know, pasted onto it and says, this is art. Well, it's not really art, it's anti-art. Uh, and I thought that was a good term. Letter B. This impressionist painter's later works, such as Poplar's at Giverny, showed how reality has changed into a dream. Who was that? Monet. Yes, Claude Monet. Now, I like a lot of Monet's paintings. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with painting in a, in a dreamlike world. Uh, we do have dreams, and that's a, a proper subject for art as much as anything else. However, uh, you see that this is actually, you know, in the larger context, a movement away from believing an object of reality that is displayed in the art world. Letter C, a post-impressionist post painter whose 1906 to 1907 painting, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, I'm not a very good French speaker, marked the birth of modern art in which a loss of humanity is notable. Who is that? Picasso. Yep, Pablo Picasso, a post-impressionist painter. So Monet was an impressionist, and then came the post-impressionist, where it moved even further away from denoting reality. Letter D. This American artist painted by placing canvases on the floor and allowing paint to spill from cans suspended on strings in a haphazard manner, one of which recently sold at auction for $12 million. Oh. Uh, who was that? Jackson Pollock. Jackson yeah. Uh, again, anti-art. Now, why does this painting sell for $12 million? You ever ask yourself a question like that? I mean, it was just, uh, it's, not, it's not real art, it's kind of anti-art. Yeah. Taxation avoided. Yeah. Can yeah. Take it, Good. Buy it and then donate it. Right. And then no cost. So, uh, the wealthy need some place to store their wealth or you know, to have tax write-offs. And so they play a little game. The wealthy play a little game amongst themselves. And they say, well, this has value. And they just decide it has value because they're existentialists and they can decide what has value. And so if they decide it has value, then they can uh, you know, assign that certain value to it. Now, for me, I would never pay $12 million for a piece of anti-art. Uh, but that's because I have a different way of determining value than these people who are in the secular humanist world, the, the postmodernist philosophy. So they can determine something to be valuable because it's anti-art, and they like anti-art. Whereas to me, I don't like anti-art, and uh, I don't value it. So interesting how we value things differently according to our philosophy. Letter E. Yeah, go ahead. One thing that I thought was interesting in reading about that yeah. is how he was trying to you know, show no but yet there was like a pattern uh -huh. because of the yep. laws of the universe. Like, right. Those little circles would yes. go in some sort of pattern so, anyway. Francis Schaeffer could thumb his nose back yeah. at those who were thumbing their nose at reality and point out that even when they try to be chaotic, they still have to function according to the laws of the universe. Yeah, very good. Letter E. He invented the 12-tone row as an expression of modern art and music featuring perpetual variation without resolution. Who is that? Schoenberg? Yeah. Arnold Schoenberg. 
Um, Bach has always been one of my favorite classical musicians, and I think that's because I have been born and raised with a Christian worldview. And so his music that represents a Christian worldview, where you have variation with resolution, and yes, there's a lot of variety in the world, but there's something that ties that variety together, that something is, is someone who is God. But for the atheistic composer, he sees variation in the world, but he doesn't believe in anything that ties it together. And so his art reflects his uh, philosophy, his worldview. And so it's interesting how you know, I'd be attracted to an artist whose worldview represents mine, and not as much to someone who doesn't. Not that there's not great things in Schoenberg's music, but there's something in it that is amiss. Uh, and subconsciously, I can feel that even if I don't know it uh, in my mind. Very interesting. Letter F. He produced music that reflected his view of the universe, blind chance and confusion devoid of meaning, mere noise. Cage. Yeah, John Cage. Sold for $13. Weren't <laughs> <laughs> the, what the video uh, showing ridiculous scenes where people would gather around the piano where he would just sit there and do nothing and then close the piano and they would cheer for him. Uh, yeah, it's anti-art, it's not art. Uh, that's John Cage applying that to music. And I think the video was very helpful along those lines. It's nice to have the book and the video together, especially for this part. Letter G. His poem, The Wasteland, matched a fragmented message to a fragmented form of poetry. That's a key word that Schaefer kept using over and over again. Fragmented. No unifying principle. He later became a Christian, and his approach to literature changed. Who was that? T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot, yep. You know, another great author who started off his life as a non-Christian and then later became a Christian, uh, William Blake. Is that, is that the right one? Or am I thinking of someone else? I shouldn't say if I can't remember. Uh, who wrote the Holy Sonnets? That wasn't Blake. That was John Dunn. I think it was John Dunn. Uh, I was a literature major. I should be able to remember these things. Um, but it's, it's fascinating to compare his early works with his later works and to see uh, what changed and the artist from the time when he was not a Christian to the time that he was. So I, I, I'd be interested in looking a little bit more into T.S. Eliot's early work and his later work. I haven't read a lot of T.S. Eliot. Alright, letter H. His movies include The Silence and The Hour of the Wolf, which are reflections of his belief that God is dead, and that we cannot therefore tell the difference between illusion and reality. Bergman? Yep, Ingmar Bergman. I haven't seen any of Ingmar Bergman's films. I don't think I would enjoy them much, but it would be philosophically interesting, at least, to see how he portrayed his view and his philosophy in film. For the extra credit then, uh, one point of extra credit for each. You have to get all three uh, for the point on question number one. What are the basic laws of thought? Non-contradiction, identity, excluded middle. Non-contradiction, identity, excluded middle are the three basic laws of thought. And then number two, which medieval theologian was heavily influenced by Aristotle? Aquinas. Aquinas, yes. So there's eight possible on the back, eight possible on the front, plus two extra credit questions. So the most you could get would be an 18 out of 16. Put the total number at the top, including extra credit. 
and then hand those in as well so that I can take note of those grades and I'll get them back to you next week. Yeah. Can we talk about how the front page goes from G to I and yes. C to H? Ooh. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> These quizzes don't have an editor, uh, and as I move from first page to second page, sometimes things get moved around. All right. We got 15 minutes. Is that all? That's uh, that's amazingly sad. All right. So what we want to do with the time that we've got left? Let me make sure I give you your assignment, so we don't run out of time for that. Go ahead and hand those in. Wesley can pick them up. Remember, class, there is a break next week, January 27th. We won't be having class here. Uh, a number of you are going to be going to the ski trip, weather permitting. Hopefully there'll be snow and it'll be a good ski day. So we're not planning on having class next week. If that changes, I will let you know. But Probably not. Uh, so that means you've got two weeks worth of homework to do between now and February 3rd. So on February 3rd, here's the homework that's going to be due. You're going to finish reading Francis Schaeffer's book. There's three chapters left, but they all kind of go together. So you're going to read chapters 11, 12, and 13 in Francis Schaeffer's book including the special note at the end of the book to Christians. And then you're going to watch episode 10 of uh, the video series and do the study guide. Now, episode 10 has a, a lot of really profound truth that Francis Schaeffer speaks. It does a great job of summarizing the last three chapters where he brings it all together. And therefore, I want you to make sure you watch the video at least twice without any other distractions. So don't multitask when you're watching the Francis Schaeffer video. Give it your full attention. Uh, maybe you know have the study guide right in front of you and, and take notes while you're doing it. This is going to tie it all together. This is the most important part where we take everything that we've learned and come to our conclusion. And I think as I was watching it again this week, uh, Francis Schaeffer was a genius. And I appreciate someone who is a genius who saw things so clearly before the rest of us. A lot of really intelligent people are just figuring out what Francis Schaeffer was talking about 40 years ago now. Uh, you go on YouTube and you listen to some of the wisest people and they're, they're just talking now about all the things that Francis Schaeffer said and it's happened exactly the way he said it was going to happen. And so it's really profound really insightful. It gives me a lot of respect for Francis Schaeffer, and I wish that I had read more Schaeffer at an earlier age, and I would have you know, figured these things out a little bit sooner that I've just been figuring it out recently. Um, especially the events of the last six, seven years, I think, have highly demonstrated the truth of Francis Schaeffer's thesis, and have, have made uh, what he's warning about so obvious and apparent. So, finish Schaefer's book, watch episode 10 twice, do the study guide questions. I didn't print out the study guide questions. You're going to have to do that yourself. Remember, I've sent you the PDF a couple of times. It should be saved someplace where you have easy access to it. So print out the study guide. 
Also, then, I've given you two more weeks to pick out a speech topic. I think in the email I'd said I wanted you to have a speech topic picked out today. However, I think it'll be helpful for you to have finished Schaefer's book before you finalize your speech topic because a number of the topics that are on there are going to be addressed in the closing chapters. So it makes sense to give you time to read the chapters and watch the final episode and, and then pick your speech topic. And then as far as study to show yourself approved goes, since we've got two weeks, I also want you to do a chapter out of study to show yourself approved uh, or principles for biblical hermeneutics. And that's chapter three along with the exam booklet. So go ahead and get your exams out from the hermeneutics textbook. If we have time, we will go over those in class here, but there's something else I'm going to make sure to cover today. Yeah? Um, so with this book, the exam like in the actual like handbook, so like, okay. like who wants to turn it in, how would we do that? Yeah, you, you don't have to turn it in, just show that you've done it. Okay. Yeah. Um, and bring it to class with you. So it's good to know that it's in the book. All right, so we're looking at the principles for biblical interpretation, and we've gotten through the first five in the first two chapters. We've got meditate, pray, obey, and be open, assume the clarity of Scripture, stress the priority of the original languages, look at the literary context, this is a new one that we had in chapter two, and remember the basic unit of Scripture, also a new one in chapter two. Now, I brought with me a number of books, resources that are on my shelf, and that if, if your family has a shelf of theology, Bible study books, these would be some of the books that I might recommend for you to look into if you want to do more in-depth Bible study. If, if God has given you the gift of teaching, and God gives the gift of teaching to many people in the church, you don't have to be a pastor to have the gift of teaching. In fact, uh, we need multiple teachers in the church so that they can check and balance one another and you don't end up with just one person's views dominating. Then you're going to want to start to build a library that will help you to be an excellent student and interpreter of the word. And so I'm going to give you a few heads up on that here in our last five minutes. We'll probably have to save the exams uh, for next time. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and point out that here on this chart, you've got to stress the priority of the original languages, number three. That the New Testament was originally written in what language? Greek. Greek, Greek. yeah. Uh, not the same Greek that's spoken in Greece today. Uh, this is Koine Greek, which is uh, the, the common Greek of the Roman Empire. Languages change a lot over time. If some of you started reading Shakespeare, you'll, you'll recognize that from the time of uh, Elizabethan English until today, English has changed quite a lot. Uh, if you multiply that times four or five and you go back 2,000 years, Greek today is very different from the way that Greek was back then. Um, and so we're looking at the ancient Greek, the Koine Greek, which is also not the same as classical Greek. So if you're studying Plato or Aristotle and, and their Greek, that's not the same Greek that we have in the New Testament. They're related, and one grew out of the other, but you can't just make a one-to-one -one correspondence that the way Plato uses this word is the way it must be used in the New Testament. And so keep that in mind. So when it comes to stressing the priority of the original languages, there are tools that will help you if you're not a Greek and Hebrew scholar. Greek and Hebrew scholars have written for 
us English speakers, so that we can still stress the priority of the original language without being experts in those languages. I'm not an expert in Hebrew or Greek. I can read Hebrew and I can uh, read Greek better, but that doesn't make me an expert. I still have to rely on those who have uh, greater expertise than I, and that's why I've got these books on my shelf. So, let's, let's talk about how you can use some of the tools in order to study the original languages, even if you don't know them. So here I've got a photograph, taken with my iPhone, of a page out of the exhaustive, exhaustive concordance of the Bible. This is probably the most important tool that you could use to st study the original languages for someone who doesn't know Greek or Hebrew. This is, you see I've used this book quite a bit, uh, and it's not a, a cheap binding. Uh, it's got a good binding, but it's about ready to fall apart, because this is probably my most used book outside of the Bible. I don't use it as much anymore, because my knowledge of Greek has gotten to the point where I don't rely on this as much as I used to. But here's how you would use it. So when you open it up to any particular page, it's, it's like a, a dictionary that it covers every word. That's why it's exhaustive. Exhaustive means every word. Every word in the Bible, it'll tell you every time that word is used in an English translation. Now, this is the New American Standard. That's the one that I preached out of when I first started preaching. I recently changed the English Standard version, so I don't use the New American Standard anymore. That's another reason why this sits on my shelf and doesn't get used. So you get the one that is in the translation that you use. And for a in-depth study of the original languages, I would encourage the use of a word-for-word -word translation. Uh, the, the more paraphrased Bible translations, like the NIV, uh, they're, they're not going to necessarily translate word-for-word, -word, and so it's going to be harder to find out well, what was the original word that was used here, whereas a word-for-word -word translation makes it a little bit easier to do word study. And I'm not saying that you word-for-word know, -word translations are better in every way, I'm just saying they're better for word study, okay? So, the New American Standard here on truth. This is of a truth, the prophet. You see, the Gospel of John uses the word truth a lot. And this isn't even all of them. I couldn't fit it on the picture here on the page. And notice that there is a number. So, over here, you've got the, the scripture reference, uh, just a, a brief snippet from it. So that if you've read the Bible a number of times, you've got a pretty good idea of what's there. You can kind of figure out what the context is. And then it's got the verse reference. And after the verse reference, it's got a number. That number corresponds to the, the Greek word. So the English word is truth. The Greek word, well, it can be different. Here it's 230. Here it's 225. Here it's 227. So... They're so close in number, they're probably related. They're probably different variations of the same root word. And so then what you do is you can go back to the uh, list of the Greek words at the back of the concordance, and you look up number 225, which was the main one there for truth. And there it's got the Greek word. It's got it first in the Greek letters, aletheia, and then it's got the English transliteration, aletheia. Uh, and then from this, then, it'll tell you that it's from another word, number 227, Um And then what is really helpful, it gives you the English translation, but then it shows you all the different ways it's translated and used and how many times it's translated that way. 
So once, it's certainly. Once, it's most certainly. Once, it's rightly. Twice, it's truly. And 104 times, it's truth. Um, and then same for alley face. Real, true, truly, truth, truthful. Uh, true is the, the main one here. And truth is the main one here. You see, same root word. So they use the same root in bringing it over into English. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and pass around the concordance. And you can take a look at that. That is a good place to start when you're like, okay, here's the English word. That's a key important word in my text. I wonder what the Greek word is. How do you, who don't have a Greek Bible, figure that out? Well, you, you, you do this. You open up your concordance. You find out what the number is. You find the Greek word. And then you can uh, find out how many times it's translated other things. And so if you wanted to do a full study on Aletheia, Aletheia, accent right, Aletheia, then you'd also want to look up certainly and see those two times where it's translated as certainly or see where it's used as rightly or truly. So you would look those up in the concordance and find number 225 and then you could see all the different ways it's used and do an exhaustive study on a word even though you don't know Greek. It's all right here for you. That work's been done. You just have to look it up. So concordance is very helpful for word studies. And I've done a lot of word studies over the years doing just this. And then another tool that you can use for word study would be a book like this, which is called The Complete Word Study New Testament. Uh -huh. so, the Complete Word Study New Testament. Of course, there's an Old Testament version for Hebrew. But this is the New Testament version for Greek. And so I thought, well, I'd use the same word, Aletheia, number 225. And there, it's doing the same thing a concordance is doing. It, it's giving you all the references, maybe not all, but most, or the significant ones, of this, this Greek word, Aletheia. And then you can do the cross-referencing and, and really get to know that word well. So if you looked up every one of these passages and read it in its context, it would give you a good idea of how the New Testament uses this word. You see? And then you go to the, the definitions part of the word study. So this is a slide from the same book, uh, a picture from that, that complete New Testament word study, where then it's got the definition of the word. Truth, as the unveiled reality lying at the basis of and agreeing with an appearance. The manifested or the veritable essence of matter. The reality pertaining to an appearance. The aletheis, the adjective, also means that same thing, just adjective form of this noun. Therefore, aletheia denotes the reality clearly lying before our eyes as opposite to a mere appearance without reality. And is used with these three distinctive meanings. And I picked this word because it ties in so well with what we're doing here in philosophy class. We're talking about objective truth, objective reality, that which is in accordance with facts as opposed to the subjective uh, imaginations of the human heart and mind. So the emphasis on truth, is, I think, was very fitting for our class on uh, philosophy. All right, then the last one that I brought with me on word study this morning is the exegetical, or excuse me, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. So this is a one-volume Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. It's an abridgment, you'll see on here, of 12 volumes. So there's a 12-volume version of this uh, that is the exhaustive version. So the Concordance is a big book. This is 12 big books. But they've taken and made this one 
for normal people like us, uh, so that we don't have to have 12 books that go into much more detail than we could ever uh, use. Instead, this is much more handy. So let me pass that one around. It's called Little Kittle, because Kittle is the 12 volume, uh, Bromley is the one volume. So I like Little Kittle, and it's a great tool. So here's one page, the first page of three or four pages in Little Kittle about Aletheia. Um, and it starts with the Old Testament term for truth. So it talks about the Hebrew, their word for truth and how it was used, because that forms a huge background for how the Greek New Testament. The, the Greek New Testament is heavily influenced by the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the, the Hebrews, they translated their Old Testament from the Hebrew into Greek about a hundred years before Christ. And so a lot of the Jews used that Greek New Testament. And they used the words in the same way that they were used in the Greek New Testament. So that's why Little Kittle starts with the Septuagint. How is the word aletheia used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament? Because that's going to have a huge impact on the New Testament use of that word. And then it'll go into the, the rabbinic and intertestamental use of the word in the writings that we have. And then it'll go into the New Testament, and it'll talk about related words as well, like aletheis or aletheinas. Uh, so that's a great word study tool as well. Now, when you're doing your Bible study, I will make some of these available for use, either during class time or for borrowing. And so if you don't have these, uh, maybe you can borrow them from me or from someone uh, else, like your pastor. Now, the last thing I want to say, thanks for sticking with me here a couple extra minutes, is commentaries also will help you with word studies. That uh, a commentary like this on the Gospel of Mark, which is what I'm currently studying, is a New International Greek Testament commentary. It's part of the series of, of Greek commentaries where the author will, will assume you know a little bit of Greek and will talk about the Greek in the text. Um, now, if you don't know any Greek, there will, other commentaries will also do the word study and will explain it to you as someone that is not a Greek student. Um, so commentaries on your passage are also a good way to focus on the original language. Because most of the people who are writing the commentaries, even if it's not a technical Greek commentary like this, they do know Greek and their knowledge of those words, it comes across in their explanation of the meaning of those words in English. So it can be a great help to you. And I'll go ahead and pass that one around. Alright, well I didn't get nearly as much done today as I thought I was going to get done. But it's always better to have more to do than just sitting around uh, twiddling our thumbs. So we'll save some of what was going to be done today for next time. I'll send out the assignment. Um, if you have any questions, I'll be here. You can talk with me. Have a good day. Thank you, Pastor Timothy. There's more copies of the speech topics if anybody didn't get it or lost theirs. Also, I need to see Isaac, Isaac, Elise, Lake, and Mark. I have not used it a lot, but I, I think it's good. <laughs>